We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Vern on Baseball, my conversation with longtime Royals beat writer, uh, Kansas City Star, MLB.com, Jeffrey Flanagan. Uh, also author of four books, including one on the uh, famed Royals hitting coach, Charlie Lau, uh, Chiefs coaching great Marty Schottenheimer, and Royals broadcaster Ryan Lefevre. So Flanny called it a career at the end of 2020, uh, and part of a large group of baseball writers hanging it up this past offseason. Uh, it was a change noted by former Royals beat writer, now with The Athletic, Andy McCullough. He tweeted, Few of the names of the guys that are retiring, Gurnett, King, T.R., Hank, Flanny, too many institutions to name have retired this winter. So I start there with Flanny. What he thinks when he hears that kind of sentiment coming from someone like Andy, as it's tagged with, maybe they'll let us back in the clubhouse someday, but writing about ball won't be the same. I mean, I, I, it reminds me of the mentors that I had, the, the Steve Camerons of the world. And I looked up to guys like Jerry Fraley, or God rest his soul. And a lot of guys like then Jerry, when I were the same age, but he was, he had been a ball writer a long time. Tracy Ringlesby, those guys mentored me and they were hard on me. I mean, really hard on me. And I just had to take it, you know, I mean, uh, maybe it was a different generational thing, but they were sarcastic and, told me I'd never make it and I was a loser and I got no chance, you know, but you, you just took it and you learned from it and uh, you made mistake after mistake and um, you got better. And, and I just appreciate, you know, the younger guys that have reached out to me or said on Twitter, uh, the influence I had on them. Um, You know, Lynn was certain Lynn worthy was one of them. Maria, you know, Lavelli Neal third, my buddy, former star guy, now covers the Twins for a long, long time, said kind of the same thing that, you know, I was an influence on him. And that, that really hits you, you know, right where you live. And, and Andy was another one. And these guys are good, young reporters who uh, are going to make a difference in our business. And I'm glad they were able to look up to us and maybe emulate some of the stuff uh, we do. And uh, I'll be honest, I think that generation is smarter than the generation I was coming up because they have more access to information than we did. You know, we didn't immediately have an opportunity to go to Google every time, you know. And but on the other hand, too, we probably watch the games a little closer than they do now um, because they go right to baseball reference for everything. And um, whereas we're, we're using trusting our eyes a little bit more. But uh, whatever. I mean, it's. It, uh, 
uh, I, I really like this up and coming generation of, of ball riders and, and Andy's, you know, right up there among, among the elite of that level of that generation. Do you think that that easier access to information has opened the door to some shortcuts or at least made it easier to act like a reporter? The old school grind isn't as rewarded as it used to be. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's probably why some, not all, just some of the new generation of ball riders aren't as plugged in and don't get as many scoops uh, because they don't, maybe they don't believe in much as, as relationships with scouts and um, minor league directors and, and just the work that it takes to do that and getting to know the players off the field uh, the way my generation did. Um, it was very common for us to go out and have beers or, or lunch or something like that with the players or golf and coaches and managers and, and everybody. And you'd see a lot less and less of that now. Yeah, that also sounds like an apt description of some in big league front offices. So, you know, old school, new school, which has lost its way, you know, maybe to be dramatic, uh, but, but which has lost its way more, Major League Baseball or uh, the, the business of reporting? That's, a, that's the question of the century. That's a great one. I don't know. Um, I do know that, and I think probably you noticed – Theo's comments, whatever it was, about a month ago about how the game has changed, not necessarily for the better, in terms of excitement and why are we losing fans and why uh, is it becoming less watchable um, because of the three true outcomes and the lack of athleticism and the type of team that you and I covered in 14, 13, 14, 15 with the Royals to me, it was the most exciting brand of baseball you can watch. I mean, it was an action game, putting the ball in play, taking extra bases, making tremendous defensive play after defensive play. We saw a little bit of that with Tampa in the, in the, uh, in the postseason, and I, I hope that part comes back. And I hope front offices, like you mentioned, maybe they did lose their way for a little bit. Maybe they're coming back and we'll get less. The analytics are a huge part of the game, but they're not the only part of the game. There has to be a balance, and I hope we get back to more of a balance. And uh, because analytics have been a lot around always, I mean, it's not like heat zone was suddenly invented like three years ago. I mean, it was around when I was covering. Shifts were too. It's just e more easily available and readable to, to read when you've got computers uh, that are high speed and and, and and iPhones and stuff like that. But um, I, I think there, I think we're going to trend back. I talked to a couple of scouts about this maybe a week ago um, that we're going to start to trend back toward more of an exciting athletic action game where guys are going to stop trying to hit a home run on every pitch and stuff like that. And I hope so because uh, I kind of missed the, I missed that game that was just five years ago. Yeah. But you know, as Mike Matheny alluded to salaries need to reflect what we want the game to look like. And as Josh Donaldson said, you know, they don't pay guys to hit singles. They pay for home runs. I agree. Uh, although I think we've home runs have become marginalized now because there have been so many of them. It's like, okay, I, I had 15 homers. Why can't I make $10 million a year? Well, every other guy in baseball had 15 homers, so big deal, or 20 homers, whatever it is. 
So, you know, maybe there's just been too much of it. So, yeah, I would like to see them reward the guy who steals 60 bases, like Amon or something like that, because um, that guy should get paid. Um, he's an exciting player. Uh, I, I would love to watch nine Montessis out there every day. I mean, that would be a, a tremendous fun experience. So, um, and, yeah, like I said, I hope we trend back that way. Yeah, speaking of Mondesi, you have to promise to continue your troll job of those uh, certain fans that question or, or endlessly knock Adalberto Mondesi's uh, ability uh, on Twitter. <laughs> oh, I'm not going away. I mean, uh, I, I'm semi-retiring. I'm not vanishing. Um, as a matter of fact, I mean, I, I, I plan on still writing – about the Royals in some capacity. It just won't be – I just couldn't do beat writing anymore. I was just burned out. But I will um, – I'll write some columns about them. I will, I will stay plugged in, and definitely I will continue to troll them. <laughs> Speaking of, of uh, the beat, where do you see the beat reporter in the next five to ten years? Are, are, are we headed toward – a pool reporter, just one man or woman, you know, following uh, the team for a number of outlets. Great question because it's it's such a high cost to have guys travel, not just financially, but it's a high cost on the individual who does it. Um, it takes a beating, and I don't know. I mean, especially with what just happened last year with the success of and I put that in quotation marks, of Zoom calls. Um, I think not just baseball, but basketball, college basketball sports uh, are going to fall in love with these Zooms because it's also a way they can control the message. And that worries worries me a lot because um, there were a lot of times that – and Swanee did an incredible job. That's why I gave him the Good Guy Award this year because he was – he worked every day above and beyond, went out and got players – and tried to get every player who had a, you know, maybe had a bad performance and tried to get him out. But he's only one guy. He can't get five guys that we need after a game. But I think it's a way that maybe some teams, not necessarily the Royals, think they might be able to control the message a little bit, kind of the way the NFL does. I hate to, I would hate to see that because the one thing that, that I liked was working the clubhouse. You like working the clubhouse. And after a tough loss, you could really tell who the gamers were in that clubhouse, who would come out after giving up three runs in the eighth then, uh, or striking out with the bases loaded twice in the seventh and the ninth, uh, who is the stand-up guys? And now you may never know because if we just go Zoom for the rest of the way, and like you say, we just have a pool reporter, I think ultimately the, the fans will pay the price for that one because I think that would be terrible. You mentioned earlier going out with you know, players and you know, having a drink. During those times, who, who was the best storyteller? Oh, David Cohn. <laughs> I mean, George would be up there, too. Um, I was lucky when I first got on the beat, you know, and Hal McCray. I mean, George and George Brett and Hal McCray kind of took me under their wing because I was just a rookie idiot, didn't know what I was doing. And, and um, they took pity on me and, and really taught me the game uh, from the inside and what it was like. And a lot of times this was over beers or – or at the dog track or wherever the hell we would go. And, and then I, you know, started to get to know the players better. And uh, I hung out with David Cohn a lot. And we would go out and, and Gooby, of course, Mark Gubiza, Jeff Montgomery, 
but all those guys were great storytellers, but I would say Cone and, and Brett were by far the best. Uh, the, with the stories they would tell would scare some people, but it did scare me, obviously, you know me. Uh, so <laughs> I've got a few of my own and it was fun, but I, I, I miss those days. Um, you know, I, I look at today's, this, this ball club, and Whit Merrifield, um, the straight shooter and everything, but he's one of those guys that likes to go out. You know, I would bump into him in spring training out at some places, and, and he's a good storyteller, too. He's kind of a throwback to that era, and I always like that about him. I think Brad Keller is going to be a little bit like that, too. I, I hope we have more guys like that because they're, they're fun. You mentioned Hal McRae. What was, was he fun? All the time, some of the time, not much of the time. 110% of the time, fun. I mean, just the most infectious laugh and so self-deprecating. And, but such a competitor was just, I, mean, I don't care. We would go to the dog track and he we would be competing with me on who would win the most money that matter, lose the least. And, and, on, and of course, uh, between the lines on the field, I mean, just – Nobody was that competitive, and anybody who played with him or against him will tell you that. Uh, but yeah, I just adored Mac. He was just an absolute joy to be around. Everybody kind of thinks of that one incident when the dumb question comes from, uh, and and he blows up. But you know that was the second straight year that they'd gotten off to a horrible start, and he just was not going to handle dumb questions anymore. And <laughs> I don't blame him. By the next morning, he was fine. I mean, he, he, he didn't have grudges, and he didn't – he wasn't – he was great to the media, absolutely great to the media. That's kind of what's misunderstood. But he was uh, absolute joy to be around 100% of the time. Speaking of that, when, when that happened, when McCray threw the ashtray and phone and all that, did you walk out of there knowing that, you know, this is going to be remembered for a, a long time? Not then. I mean, it would have lived – longer now because it would have been on Twitter immediately. Right. Uh, back then, I remember I had a hard time convincing my boss that was a big deal that night. You know, I said, you know, this is going to kind of blow up. This is going to be big because it wasn't until I, I want to say it was maybe a week later that the video came out. Um, so all we had was, was my description of it and Alan Eskew's description of it. And, the people that were in the room, there weren't many of us. I think Rick Plumley from Wichita was obviously in there too. But there weren't many of us. And then there were the players, of course, who could hear it. And, you know, a famous photo of Al, Al coming out with his – was real cold that night. said his long johns on and he had a bottle of vodka in one hand. <laughs> it was just awesome. Uh, it, it stunned Dean Vogelar, the PR director, and Scoop coming out bleeding. And I think I came out right behind him and – yeah, we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't know how long it would last. Because back then, as, as you, were, you were a historian, there were blow-ups all the time. There was Lou Pinella going after, was it Dibble, I think it was back then. There were fights in the clubhouse all the time, stuff like that. And they would just kind of blow over after a day or two. Because this one had video, it, it, it had a longer shelf time, a longer life. But in, in today's world, this would have been, um, this would have went viral that night. And Hal probably would have been fired the next morning. You know, I mean, that's just the way yeah. we live in. Um, there, there's too many sensitive people. But we, 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 within two hours after writing the story, we were laughing about it. So, you know, it wasn't 
that traumatic to us, but it's different nowadays. You also mentioned George. Uh, how much of it with his greatness was hard work? How much of it was natural talent? Well, I, obviously, if he, doesn't, if he doesn't meet Charlie Lau and doesn't listen to Charlie Lau, he may have never even lasted in the majors. We never would have heard who George Brett was because that was the career changer. Uh, I think it was in 74. And that whole – and a lot of Royals are like that. Hal McRae, Willie Wilson, all the guys who bought in to Charlie's system of hitting. And I wrote about it in my book, Lau's Laws on Hitting with this Charlie's son. But it was certainly a lot of hard work because it's, it's not that easy of a system to learn. So he had to put in the time, and he did. Um, he was, and he had an influence, too. His dad, Jack, was hard on him, um, really hard on him. And he, George would tell me stories about that, too, and tough father. And all the boys were very athletic in that family. And George wasn't even the best athlete growing up in that family so he had to work a little extra harder but sure there was a ton of talent but George like Hal was a fierce competitor and um, worked his ass off and so I mean I think it was kind of 50-50 there has to be some talent there or he would never have gotten drafted and never you know moved up through the system but there's some luck too that Charlie Lau just happened to be in the Royals organization at that time and, and taught him how a new, new way to hit, which by the way is funny. And I was talking to Russ and Dodd about this one time, uh, the new style of hitting the whole thing about loft is something Charlie talked about in the 1970s. And it wasn't necessarily about having a elevated bat swing. It was about having lead arm extension and hitting on the bottom half of the ball to get backspin instead of topspin, which allows the ball to travel farther. And people nowadays, are, our kids are figuring that out too, not just trying to swing with an uppercut, but also hitting the ball with backspin. And so talk about five decades ahead of his time too, was Charlie Lau. So anyway, George had hit in another ballpark besides Kauffman Stadium, probably would have hit 500 homers without doubt. Al Collins talked about that. Amos Lewis talked about that. That that thing was a uh, back in the day. You just couldn't hit home runs there. So they would have hit a lot more home runs, and George hit plenty anyway. But he would have hit a lot more. You mentioned Hal McRae's competitiveness inside and outside the game. Was George comparable? Hundred percent. You know, you, you look at the fight, the famous fight between him and and, and Nettles at third base. They're throwing haymakers and. <laughs> such a different time they get up brush off their pants and they go right on you know <laughs> can you imagine that today there's no chance I mean they both have been thrown out suspended but yeah I mean those guys that whole team was kind of like that too I mean they I wasn't around to cover them obviously but I was lucky enough to to hang with a lot of those guys later in their careers and Willie was too I mean those guys just would oh they would bite your ass off to win a game. They just hated losing, just hated it. And it stuck with them when they would lose a game. And they would sit around and, and they would tell me, they would tell me stories that they would sit around the clubhouse and just brood and have beers and just be pissed all the time about losing. And uh, you couldn't wait to get back out the next day and, and beat the hell out of somebody. So 
that's cool. I mean, I, I just think that's the way you play ball. You mentioned the book on Charlie Lau. Uh, how about Marty Ball? Uh, your book with former Chiefs coach Marty Schottenheimer. What was the best part of that experience? Uh, just getting to know Marty uh, and his family, Pat and, and Brian, who's doing a great job as the, as the offensive coordinator with the Seahawks now, and Kristen, his daughter. Just kind of being welcomed into that family because it was a two-year project. And so I spent a lot of time with them uh, at their vacation home in Palm Springs and, and also in Charlotte, where they live now. Um, and he's just such a cool dude. And I just can't believe he's not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame because truly, to me, one of the greatest coaches of all time. And I don't think there's ever been a coach that unlucky. You talk about the, the losses he's had in the playoffs, we you know, uh, um, not just the fumble and the drive, but uh, what happened with Lynn Elliott here uh, with Elvis and, and then the one in San Diego where I thought that was the t- best team he probably had. And, you know, you get the interception at the end of the game and instead of the guy going to his knee and, and they can run the clock out, he tries to be a hero and run with it and fumbles and Tom Brady comes back and, you know, just that kind of stuff. And, and to me, I will always remember, you know, the, the – the two years I wrote that the one line that will always stand out to me, because I remember asking him early on, how, how does a human being deal with that much anguish and that much sorrow and frustration? And he just kind of looked at me and he said, you know, it's not always about you. <laughs> I just went, wow. Okay. As he pointed out, he goes, look, if, if, if there isn't the drive, is John Elway – the John Elway we remember. On the flip side of all those horrific losses was something fantastic for the other team. And that's how Marty kind of looked at things. And, you know, when you're a fan or you're somebody covering a TV, it's hard to do that. You know, you, you know me, I'm a Packer fan. I don't always look at it go, oh, that was good for the other team. <laughs> no, I'm throwing stuff through my TV, you know. Uh, but there is a flip side to it, and that's what Marty, that's what got Marty through those tough losses. And so that always stands out. But it was just a tremendous experience. By far the best thing I've ever written, uh, cover to cover, and uh, very proud of that book. So from Marty to all of the managers you were around, is there a common trait that all of the very good to great ones have? Humility. And having a sense of humor and not taking themselves so seriously. The guys that I struggled with <clears throat> covering, um, and there was really only one, that was Bob Boone, took himself too seriously and really didn't have a great sense of humor. But everybody else, from Hal to Tony Muser to Tony Pena, Buddy Bell was funny. You know, well, Trey Hillman did not have a great sense of humor either. He was kind of rough around the edges but Ned of course and Ned wasn't like that early on as you remember you know him in Milwaukee you know him here it took a while for Ned to become the Ned we know uh it wasn't until 2014 and then he was just this totally different guy it was cool to be around but I think they all had some kind of sense of humility that it's not all all focused on them that they're not the smartest person ever and and, uh, and I think players respect that and you got to be tough. There's no doubt about it. Ned's not someone, as a player, I would have ever wanted to mess with. 
I can tell you another thing. I don't think I'd want, if I were a player, I'd want to mess with Mike Matheny. I think you and I talked about that last spring. Guy's an intimidating dude. Um, he's a big guy. I think he could kick the crap out of everybody on that team. I had several players tell me that too last spring. Like, they go, that's one guy you don't really want to mess with. And it's not saying he's mean spirited, he's, he's romping around like Vincent Lombardi. He's just, uh, he's got a presence. And I think that's another thing you do. You do have to have a presence. They have to know you're there. All the good ones have that. Yeah, it seems like Matheny and, and Ned, they're both the type that if you dog it, you're not going to be able to escape it. You know, they're going to call you on it because they, they noticed. They saw that, and that's not their style. 100%. And it's, it's interesting you brought that up, too, because um, – there's not a lot of similarities between Ned and Mike Matheny, but one thing they both once told me privately is that they're kind of okay with a player, like you said, if he's dogging it, just come up and say, rather than make an excuse and just say, look, I was dogging it. I'm not going to BS you. And when a player does that to a manager, the manager thinks, okay, this guy gets it. He knows he messed up. I don't think he's going to do it again because he doesn't want to draw my ire. But it's like you say, it's the guys who go, well, I was trying. You know, no, you weren't. You weren't. Uh, you weren't. You didn't run that ball out. I, we could all see it, you know. So, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of Ned and those championship teams, uh, what did you enjoy most other than the style of play? What did you enjoy most about covering that club? Just – the vibes in the clubhouse. I mean, there were so many different personalities and you were there too, that it was, it was really fun going in there every day. Uh, whether it was Haas or Moose or, you know, Dyson was so loud all the time. You know, you could hear him a mile away. You know, you know me, I got, I just loved Eddie Volquez. I mean, he just cracked me up all the time or hearing that squeaky voice of your Dono. I still, I miss that. And, and him and Sal going at it, and God, just all around that clubhouse, and they all would just sit. Alex would just sit there and just shake his head because there were so many characters in that clubhouse. Lorenzo Cain, just the joy of being around him, and every single day he would just come up to me, you know. And I, you've heard this a million times, but he'd just look at me and go, "Flanny, my legs hurt, my feet." <laughs> My hurts, my hands hurt. <laughs> just go down the list every day. I mean, it was uh, I just love that. And, uh, you know, Moose, Moose had his issues early on, but he was fine. You know, I mean, he, you know, I, after 14, I thought he was great. Uh, Haas, of course, was a go-to guy after the game. Wade Davis, we liked hanging around him. He was just so cool. Um, just Chris Young, CY was fantastic. Um, didn't tolerate any dumb questions, but he knew that going in. But great to talk to before a game and just you know, pick his brain about things. That was a, a fascinating mix. I love Kendris Morales, and I don't think he ever understood a word I said or vice versa. But, I mean, there's just something about Big Ken. He just kind of it's drew you into him. He was cool. Uh, a great disposition. Yeah, Drew Batera was cool to hang out. It was a great group of guys, and you know that too. I mean, it was just fun to cover. Every day in the clubhouse was just fun. You know, Dayton Moore often talks about how players need to maintain a childlike enthusiasm when it comes to the game. You have to love it. Is that true for the beat writer? 
Oh yeah, you gotta have fun because otherwise you'll go crazy. Uh, especially, you know, I covered a lot of bad baseball with the Royals through the years, and you know there was a glimpse of hope in '93 and '94, and then briefly in 2003, and then nothing else till Dayton came around, and even that took a long time till 2013. You started to see it. Um, you gotta have a sense of humor. You gotta have fun in the press box and even if it means being a little politically incorrect at times, it's just gotta be fun. And look, we both know Tom Hardikoff very well and who is more fun than him in a press box? I mean, I'll, I will never be that loud all the time, but <laughs> uh, people probably don't know what we're talking about, but Tom Hardikoff covers the Brewers and he's just a hoot. I mean, uh, it's like a one man comedy show in the, in the in the press box and you got to have that. I mean, uh, it can't just be 10 guys just sitting there staring at their computers and not saying anything. You got to, it's, it's a sport. It's baseball. It's fun. You got to turn to your guy and go, can you believe that play? Or what was that guy thinking? And, and just laugh it off and um, have fun with everybody. And uh, yeah, you got to have that child. Like you, you can't completely grow up uh, covering baseball. You got to, you got to love it. You got to be a kid. Is it difficult to avoid becoming a cynic, an endless cynical <laughs> SOB. You know, some in the media tend to forget at times the difficulty of the job of being a big leaguer. Um, it, it's easy to be cynical when you're watching from the seventh floor. I don't think that's hard at all for me. I mean, I, it's just such a handful of people who rise to this level out of whatever, 380 million people or whatever. I mean, in the United States, but how many people on the planet are able to be one of 700 so that can play this game at this level? It is so hard. It's so difficult. And I think you and I are in agreement there that a lot of times it's hard to see the snark on Twitter um, when guys fail on the field, especially if, somebody striking out against uh, a Royal is striking out against a guy who's bringing it at 102 and throws a 90 mile an hour change up and he whiffs and, uh, and all of a sudden Twitter's all over him. Um, they don't, some people don't appreciate, not all, but some people don't appreciate how damn hard this game is and how many players it just chews up and spits out. I got taught that uh, very early in my career. Um, by George and by Hal and, 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 and Coney and, and Gooby and those guys. This the old saying is the other guys on scholarship too. I mean, they're running into guys that are just as good as they are not, or are not better. And you're not going to win every time. And uh, that got ingrained in my brain long, long time ago. And I've never fought, forgotten that. And I don't get, I don't get too critical of guys struggle. Because uh, I like with Mondi and, and other guys, and, and right now Nikki's like the new Nikki Lopez, the new punching bag on Twitter. And the guys had one full season in the big leagues, well, not even a full season, a 60 game sprint, and uh, parts of another. And uh, you know, half of Twitter's ready to give up on them. And it just takes time. I mean, Lorenzo Kane was not Lorenzo Kane when he came up at 12 and 13. I mean, I, I wondered if he'd ever hit to be honest, all I would see was these little flares that would go over the second baseman head for a long time. Obviously, Moose, everybody was ready to give up on him. I mean, you, Haas, his second year was not very good. If people were ready, you, you have to be patient. And Dayton stresses that all the time. You have to be patient. 
give them time to develop. Um, Hunter Dozier is another guy they've given time to, and you're seeing the, the benefits of that. It's a really hard game, and you've got to be patient, and you've got to look at the picture all the time. It's 100 well, – most years, it's 162 games. Look at over the big big picture of scheme of things, and if a guy struggles in April and May, you don't automatically pull the trigger and get rid of him. you gotta, you got to stick with it. And that's, I think that's hard for some fans, but as a ball writer and as a Raider reporter like you are and uh, whatever else, um, you got to remember that at all times. Look at the big picture. All right, final final things here. Uh, first, I saw a lot of readers reach out on social media thanking you for you know, all your work. Uh, and it made me wonder, what attributes do you have uh, that you think helped you most in your career? Number one, probably I, I never quit chasing a story. I would just and, I, and it's tied into the same thing. I get angry if someone beats me on a story. I get, and anyone who's been around me, anyone who's lived with me knows I'm just miserable to be around if I don't have a story first. You have to own the beat. You absolutely have to own it. And to get to that point, which answer the second part of that, is to, you have to have people in the organization, and we talked about this a little bit before, uh, and the players in the clubhouse, the coaches, the scouts, they have to trust you completely 100%. They have to. And if you don't have those two things, you might be okay, but you'll never be really good. And then for those that want to get into the business but are fearful of its future, what do you say to them? Well, I don't know uh, how fearful they are because uh, the minute I made my announcement, uh, I think a hundred applications came in. Uh, seriously, I mean, that's uh, – and it's partly because of the economy right now, too. Uh, and you got all these journalism students coming out of school with nowhere to go. And, uh, I mean, it was just a, you know, a landslide of, of, of applications. So, But it is scary. It's not it, – it's changed over the years. Like when I first started writing, we, you, you, you did almost all 162. Uh, you did all 81 on the road. You did – almost every single home game and that's changing and changing and changing and but it's still it's still a great gig what you do what I do it's still great it's you're covering baseball you're covering a sport it beats anything else in life to in terms of employment um there's just no substitute and I don't have any regrets about choosing this career let me tell you that yeah no question well Flanny I Really appreciate the uh, all of this time you've uh, been generous with today. I appreciate, and I've told you this before, um, but I'll say it to you again. I appreciate all the guidance, all the advice, all the help over the years. Um, and I'll stay in touch and hopefully see you soon. Yeah, we're definitely not done, and we'll, we'll stay in touch, Vern. You know that. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t 
Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.